From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to another episode of My Capital Idea. This is Michael Williams with the Defenders of Capitalism Project, where we talk about all things capitalism, all things free market, individual rights, and the proper role of government. I have a special guest in the studio today. I really appreciate you being here, Roger. Roger Pattison, our runner-up for the Defenders of Capitalism Project with the leadership program of the Rockies in 2023 this past spring. So many things I want to talk to you about, Roger. I mean, I've been meaning to have you come in you know, since last spring, and it's funny that uh, you know, we were talking, sitting around having a beer at Slattery's uh, not that long ago, talking about lots of different things. But what made me think I got to get you in here is this whole Javier Malay election. You know, this last couple of days, we're, we're, here we are the day before Thanksgiving 2023 and a lot to be grateful for. I'm grateful for this guy's election. Same here. Same <laughs> kind here. of an amazing thing. So we want to get into that. But I mean, there's a ton of things I want to talk to you about. I mean, it's really interesting what's going on in the world right now. And you have a fair amount of expertise on a lot of things. Let's talk about, first of all, your role right now, what you do. You're the Chief Development Officer at A Scholarships. You've had stints at Stand America and in the Institute for Humane Studies, right? Yes, yeah, Stand Together in the Institute for Humane Studies. Yeah. yeah, and you attended Hillsdale College. You got a bachelor's degree in economics and Spanish. You have a master's at George Mason University, right? I didn't complete it. I almost did. I had to change jobs, but I got to uh, learn with some of the best economists in the world. Yeah, that's that's the top free market school in the country, at least right now. I know there's other schools that are kind of competing for that title, but uh, you have you have an interesting background. And most importantly, like I said, you are defenders of capitalism, uh, you know, one of the top leaders in the class of 2023. And hopefully you'll be helping us with the Defenders Project over the, the coming years. Happy to do so. But one of the reasons why I wanted to have you, that reminded me that I wanted to have you back in here was because your Defenders of Capitalism presentation, you gave uh, a number of personal experiences that you had in Latin America that were really compelling. And I thought, you know, Roger's got some expertise. You know, you've been to Argentina a number of times. You studied there. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you here. But talk. let's first talk about ACE. It's one of my favorite organizations. They do some really good work. Tell us about ACE and, and what they do in the way of supporting children uh, for lots of educational opportunity. Yeah, for sure. But first, Mike, I just want to thank you for, for having me. And I just got to tell you, you were instrumental in my education around the principles and the morality around capitalism. I had learned a lot through my economics education at Hillsdale and George Mason about the nuts and bolts and the utilitarian effects of free markets. But when it comes down to morality, you really educated me on on that. So thank you. And I'm glad to be here. Well, I appreciate that. I, I wasn't sure you really were. I th- you, you're one of those people who came into LPR, our leadership program of the Rockies, with you know, a pretty good foundation already. And, and it was clear that you were going to be a real leader in your class. And I, I had a number of people in this last year's class tell me how much of an impact you had on them. So I appreciate you saying that, Roger. And, and But but talk to talk to me more about ACE. Talk to me about your role at ACE, the organization itself. Tell us about that. Yeah, for sure. So I'm the chief development officer, which means I get to ask people for money for a great cause. And I lead a great group of individuals that do the same. We're in 12 states across the country. And what we do is that we provide lower income families scholarships for their kiddos to go to a private K-12 school of their choice 
And on top of that, we advocate on behalf of those families for expanded school choice in the states. So our founders 23 years ago would been fighting the good fight for education freedom in the policy arena for decades, spending millions of dollars. And they almost passed, well, they passed something here in Colorado, and then it was uh, shot down by, by the courts, unfortunately. They said, as good business leaders often do, said, heck with it, we're going to do it on our own. And so they started providing scholarships so kids can go to private schools and get out of uh, uh, education that wasn't a right fit for them. I mean, you fast forward now 23 years, we're we're given over 15,000 scholarships across 12 states uh, across the country. We've helped pass great tax credit legislation in states like Montana, Kansas, Louisiana, Arkansas. Um, You know, the big uh, one thing that is not very well known is that the big Espinoza case, that big school choice case that went to the Supreme Court, Espinoza, the family, they were ace parents that received a tax credit scholarship and they had the standing to go to the, all the way to the Supreme Court to fight for school choice. And so it's a really exciting time uh, to be to be at ACE, and that's that's what a bit of what we do. It is, you know, it's interesting. I remember you and I sitting there uh, on the patio of Slattery's talking about education. Ed- education being the you know, like the most important issue of our time right now. Um, exactly. And we've had Corey DeAngelis here in the studio. Uh, had him on the podcast, and um, and I really do believe that. I mean, every other major issue that we have in society kind of boils down to the fact that we have lots of people who are not well-educated or not enough choice and freedom in education. So the work that you guys are doing is crucial. I mean, it's, it's uh, in my mind, like I said, I, I think it's the most important issue we face because everything else is going to be affected by how well our populace mm-hmm. is educated. Talk more about that. I mean, just the whole movement, the whole school choice movement itself. Yeah. So Corey's uh, a friend and he's been instrumental, as you've seen, as many people have seen, and just advancing this knowledge around school choice uh, across the country. I mean, we've been fighting for school choice for, I mean, the first bills passed were a hundred years ago in Vermont. And we've been fighting for it ever, ever since. But really what a lot of people realize, and this might be old hat for some of you listening to this, but since COVID really had kids be pulled out of school, families realize what they're being educated or the lack of education they were really receiving, and they were just fed up. And so 2 million, just between 2020 and 2022, 2 million kids estimated got pulled out of the public education system out of 50 million. And some of them went, just didn't go back, unfortunately. And then the others went to charter schools and, and private schools. And if you actually look at the results over the past two years of as far as educational attainment, public school system, we've lost 30 years of educational advancement in our country. But if you look at the results from our private schools, they're steady Eddie yeah. during a difficult time. So a lot of people are, are seeing the change or seeing or demanding a change from their, their lawmakers in, in states. And so you're seeing that wave across the country. Places like Utah, Arkansas have passed what they call education savings accounts, where think of your HSA, you know, your, your employer funds that, for instance, and you get to choose how you expend those, those resources. It's much the same with education savings account in that those opportunities that have passed like in Arizona and West Virginia and now Florida as well are just great opportunities for parents to really choose the best educational path for their kid. Say you have a special needs kid that needs tutoring plus a private school or educational books or anything like that, you now have 
the power to do that. And so we're really excited about this and you're going to see more on the horizon coming up. And I have something exciting to share too about ACE. We've been involved in the fight for education for 23 years and giving out scholarships and uh, working with state governments on tax credit scholarships. We have been selected uh, to manage Utah's Utah Fits All uh, education program, their ESA program in the state. It's going to start off with 5,000 kids, but uh, giving $8,000 per kid, but it's going to grow over time. And that's the wave of the future in education so it, freedom. Does, I, I saw a headline on that just in the last couple of days, and I'm not sure I understood it. Is is that associated at all with the, like the 529 stuff, or is that just mainly you know the like you said you know, Utah's program for like not college? No, not college for for K through 12 expenses. Okay, okay, cool. That's fantastic. How did that process work? How did you guys uh, get selected to to do that? You know, we just have to give a lot of kudos to local groups on the ground and and national groups that fought for the passage of the the legislation. And then there was a competitive bidding process, uh, an open RFP request for proposal from the, the Board of Education and the committee that they selected. And there were five total competitors. And fortunately, and, you know, we were humbled by this, we won out out of all those competitors just based off of we have already been giving scholarships in the state. We have a presence in the state. We work with schools already in uh, there. And we've built out a platform with a, a great partner called Glass Wallet to really provide Utahns the educational pathways they deserve. So how do you respond to people? Because I just said, you know, how important this issue and that school reform is one of the most important things. I mean, I think most people, right, left, whoever, you know, everyone always agrees education is crucial Mm -hmm. and reform is crucial. And a lot of people would respond and say, well, those guys over at Ace, yeah, they're the, the people who funded them and started them a long time a year, all they want to do is defund public education, have it be elitist in the private schools and all that kind of stuff. They want, they want everyone to be in a private school and that's elitist. So how do you respond to that whole thing? Well, it's, it's not elitist because most of these programs focus on lower income families. Higher income families already have access to private education. We're just trying to level the playing ground. Corey DeAngelis, who you mentioned earlier, has a, I always... Uh, you know, mimic what he says too. Is we're for funding students rather than systems. And when you actually poll left, right, center across the board in a lot of these states, parents want that freedom. And we believe and they know that they know the best educational environment for their children, whether it's a public school or a private school or a micro school that are popping up all over the place, homeschooling, any of these options that's going to be the right fit for their child. And in states where we've actually seen their studies uh, done on this, Patrick Wolf out of Arkansas, University of Arkansas, and Corey, who studied under him, have shown, you know, where education school or school choice is advanced in some of these states, the public schools do better as well. Like we're, we believe in competition and markets. And once there's some pressure to change, then any school is going to react to it. Private schools already have to. So yeah. now public schools will. Yeah, competition and markets usually work. And that's that's what you're talking about. Exactly. So what about, I mean, do you feel like, as we've said, this is sort of a moment. There's a window here right now, partly because of COVID and, and just the obvious deficiencies of what was going on in most public schools and and parents being able to sort of have their attention woken up about that. Mm -hmm. But is that, is that fading now or is it only gaining momentum? Because my fear is because I think it's so important. I wonder if, you know, that, that whole COVID experience 
it was a moment in time and people were now sort of letting that fade and go, well, let's go back to the public schools or, you know, just go back as business as usual, or is it gaining momentum now? You know, I'm, I'm worried about that as well. My hope is that the momentum will keep up politically. You're, you're seeing it right now. Um, you know, we're right before Thanksgiving, so things may have changed with Texas, but they're in their fourth special session to advance educational freedom. <laughs> they, the Republicans are kind of at each other's throats on that, but there's other states on the on the horizon. Like this next year, we feel pretty confident about states like Louisiana and Mississippi, and Mississippi, one of the poorest performing states in all metrics, including education. And I think people, you know, the awakening that happened with parents won't be soon forgotten. I hope that people are going to stand up and choose school choice. You're seeing this on the left too. I speak with Democratic lawmakers. I won't name names, but they are largely in favor of school choice, but they're beholden to the teachers' unions and they're going to get primary or their heads chopped off if they stand out on this. That's the hard part, right? When you politicize something like that. I mean, like you said, left, right, or middle, wherever, the people, when you talk to people and parents, they're not really caring about you know, whether it's a Republican or Democrat or whatever, they just want the best thing for their kid. But then you get into state legislatures and who's lobbying. And obviously the, the teachers unions are, are, are a huge power. Yep. So that, that's part of the challenge. Well, let me give you an example on that. Uh, Representative Misha Maynard, who's a state representative in Georgia, you know, stood up for school choice. She's an African-American Democrat. I saw that. I saw some video and, of her. Yeah. And she she just got torn down by her own party, by people in there because they were afraid. Yep. And she's had to switch parties in order to speak her conscience. And I applaud her for that. Courageous. She was very courageous. We'll, we'll see how, you know, if hopefully that is a, a call for others to, to do the same. And I'm on the East Coast a lot. And we were expanding out on the East Coast. And I'm talking to Democratic lawmakers in states like Delaware and other places. And they're in favor of it. But they need to, someone needs to show courage and actually survive. That reminds me to ask you. I mean, I never, you and I never really talked explicitly politics. And, you know, a lot of times people uh, who aren't aware of what we teach in the leadership program of the Rockies think we're like a right wing, you know, conservative group. And there, there's certainly some roots there. And, and, and there are people who are attracted, especially since we have such an affinity for the founding of America and, you know, sort of patriotism. There's a lot of people who have that kind of a vibe or feeling when they come in. But I wanted to ask you just more about your own political views. I mean, if you're comfortable sharing them, I mean, because I, I, my sense is that you're not that, I wouldn't, I don't know if you'd characterize yourself as conservative or liberal or classical liberal, like, like myself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to share. And obviously all my thoughts and ideas are, are my own, not representative of ACE because it's, ACE is a school choice organization, non, nonpartisan. Unfortunately, this, uh, issue has been politicized, but I would say I'm a classical liberal. Um, I used to be more libertarian in a, in a sense, but libertarians are often connotated with anarcho-capitalists, which we could get to with Javier Malay yeah, and Argentina. I'm in love with the idea of anarcho-capitalism, but uh, I just don't think it's uh, very pragmatic. And so, so you like the ideal versus the, the what you think is realistic in terms of... Uh implementation. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you take our uh, philosophies around freedom versus force, um, and any government action, I, I, I would say ultimately comes down to the use of force in order to implement it. Like, you know, taxation is theft. Sure. 
in, in a sense, if you, lo- if you take it to the logical conclusion. And so I'm in love with those ideas, but pragmatically, I, I don't see a world, at least now, in our Well, modern- we'll get to that more yeah. with Javier. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think exactly. that'll be interesting to talk we'll, about. We'll see. Yeah. But back on the school choice thing, I, I, wondered if, I wanted to ask you if you'd seen it or not. There, there was a big headline in the New York Times uh, the last couple of days. And you know, this has been going on for really the last six months or a year. There's all kinds of objective evidence. I mean, people, and you know, sort of taking it out of politics, but they have an agenda. But people having to admit there's all kinds of, of objective evidence and studies that are coming out supporting what you just said a little while ago about how, how much has been missed. I mean, how far backwards we've had many kids and their performance, their educational progress go in the last two or three years because of what happened in COVID. Uh, and the New York Times was, was saying that. You know, it's, just, it's, it's just the biggest tragedy we've seen in the last century. Yep. Now, I think they had an agenda behind that a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious if you saw that article or, or making comments on some of that. You know, there's a lot of studies that support what you said. Yeah, I'm, I, I can't point to that exact study, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But what you're seeing is a lot of these people reverse themselves. So Randy Weingarten, for instance, is uh, who's Corey D'Angelo's favorite uh, foil. Um, <laughs> she is the head of the, the National Teachers Unions, and uh, she was a big proponent of keeping the cl- uh, schools closed. And, and then recently she reversed herself. You know, I always fought, you know, I always said, I always fought that I was going to uh, reopen the schools because now she realized it was a mistake. Everyone realized it was a mistake with a not at risk population and the results are just terrible. And this, in the social skills from particularly young kids are just clear as day that it's going to take them years to catch up if they ever do catch up. And, and so they're, you're seeing them reverse themselves based off of the studies that are coming out and just like the anecdotal evidence. How are they getting away with that, though? That's what's funny to me is that, you know, they, they for so long, were advocates of shutting things down and, you know, uh, worried about the kids, worried about the teachers. When, as you say, there wasn't any, any real evidence of, of that population being at risk. It was certainly older people who were being at risk. Um, and now they're, they're kind of rewriting history. How are they doing that? I mean, I don't know if anybody's really calling them out yeah. on anything. Well, you and, are, and Corey certainly. Yeah, is. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we can, and I, I, in, in our f- official capacity, we try not to call anybody. I work for something and yeah. not against any anybody at um, a scholarships, but um, it's it's just funny. I mean, they if you look at where they are gaining or they are keeping power, the teachers unions and where they're losing power. It's very clear, you know, in right leaning states, they, they, or even purple states like Colorado, they're not, I mean, they're, they're powerful, but they're not as powerful as they once were. But in Illinois, I mean, they just got rid of a tax credit program. I can't remember the details. We're not active in Illinois, but one of the programs has, five to 10,000 kids on, on scholarship through the, through the state's tax credits, which, you know, donors give and they get a state income tax credit. And that's just poof gone because of, you know, even though the governor there said he was supportive of it and all these things, it, it's just still in states like Illinois and then Pennsylvania. I don't know if you heard about Pennsylvania, Governor Shapiro there, I think his name is Shapiro. He, um, 
ran on a platform. He's a Democrat. He ran on a platform for school choice, was popular, and then he passed something in his budget, and then he had to line-item veto his own proposal because of the threats from the teachers' unions. Wow. So there are still strongholds, but I would say they're, they're losing power nationally. What do, you, what do you think the state of Colorado is right now? I know you guys are here, but you, you have influence in lots of different states, and the, the battleground changes, but what's the state of educational choice and uh, that movement here in Colorado. Yeah, I uh, unfortunately doesn't seem that good. I, I have a more of a national uh, presence. And I, as you know, I just moved here maybe like a year and a half, two years ago. But um, it's very difficult, to, for instance, to get a charter school opened here in, in the state. We um, ace scholarships. Fortunately, we are pretty much you know well represented at all the private schools, so lower income families have access to private school choice. The charters are, are just becoming a more difficult thing. School boards, you're seeing some changes in the school boards, but you know I'm not seeing much change here. Well, so we were talking about like, you know, classical liberalism and and this whole idea of this new guy who's just been elected uh, this just a few days ago, Javier Millet in Argentina. And most of our listeners probably are like, what are they going to talk about Argentina for? You know, we got enough problems here in the U.S. or in Colorado. I mean, why do they want to talk? This is a Defenders of Capitalism podcast. And if you're aware of Argentina, you know it's a disaster in the first, a socialist disaster for the last, I don't know, 50, 80 years. But that's partly why I wanted to have you on, um, Roger, because you have some experience. I mean, I mean you, you, when I asked you, you said, you know, hey, I'm not an expert on, on Argentinian politics or economics or so forth. But, but you have some experience there. You went to school there, you, you, know, you visit there. And as I mentioned at the outset, in our Defenders of Capitalism competition at LPR, you gave some personal stories about Latin America, your experience there. So I've got some specific questions about Javier Malay, but I'm just curious, fill, fill the audience in a little bit about your own experience and thoughts and the history of Argentina uh, in terms of economics. Yes, happy to do so. It's it's fascinating in my mind. And I think one thing that the audience could take away, even though it's Latin America or any other country, it's a case study in what can happen here. I mean, I went to uh, school in 2006 or seven in Argentina and Cordoba, which is in the center of the country, but I traveled around the, the entire country. And, and I got to, you know, learn a little bit about um, their, their history and, and I loved it. I mean, it's very European. The architecture is beautiful. I mean, from the previous age where they were more liberal in the classical sense than, than they, they actually became over the past hundred years, but it's a beautiful country. But what many people on that would have heard about Argentina know that the GDP per capita was higher than the, than the U.S., at that time, you know, riches in Argentine. There was a saying back in the turn of the 20th century that was a very, in Argentina itself means silver. Like La Plata, where Buenos Aires is, uh, that province there is, is it means silver. So, um, so they they're known for being rich, but then all of a sudden something happened. The Perones, who were came or populist uh, presidents, and a lot of people know Evita. Uh, from that played Madonna or Madonna played, they were just adored. But if you actually look at their policies, which then became what's now called Peronism, 
it is a mixture of nationalism and socialism. It is almost kind of like what Germany was, but over the years has just kind of morphed into anything, you know, corrupt and criminal really. <laughs> um, and so you see really from that point on a steady decline in living standards ever since the, you know, the 1940s, the post-war, the post-war period into today, which we can get into. But yeah, so I've studied in Argentina, studied economics there. And then I studied, um, I visited all throughout Latin America, mostly Central America, and just saw the the results of a socialist experiment gone wrong. So what does that happen? It seems like everywhere south of Texas is today mostly socialist. I mean, there's a few pockets in South America, but it seems like they go through these phases of where they try markets, they try an open society, more of a liberal, open, uh, free market society, and they do well. Like you said, Argentina is like, I like your your phrase, it's a case study for us. To, and, and this is the challenge right now, right? Because, you know, he's made lots of claims about what he's going to do, uh, Malay has, and, you know, he needs to be hold, held to account. And so it is going to be a, a case study. Now, the problem is people always like take politicians and, and use their words against them, which maybe sometimes they do need to. But it, it's a it's going to be a case study. But why is every place you know south? Why is the whole Latin American world subject oftentimes to taking their successes and blowing them up with socialism? I mean, it is it is interesting uh, to see. So there's a cultural aspect, and every country is dis- different. I don't mean to make a wide sweeping uh, generalization. Yeah, but that's not fair on my part, I guess. No, 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 no. It, it's a good question because you you see it throughout all the the countries there. So there's a couple of things. So Argentina was the birthplace of Che Guevara, and he obviously swept through there, hugely popular still, and then obviously went to to Cuba and helped Castro there. And then also there have been market reforms that were very successful in, in different countries. So Argentina tried it. They did, they did a couple of times try to really uh, liberalize their economy. It was a mixed bag because of cronyism. In Chile, well, they're, it, both in Argentina and Chile, they advanced. Like, so Milton Friedman went to Chile. Yeah, the Chicago fam- boys. Yeah, the Chicago boys went down and famously really turned around that country. Unfortunately, and this is something that we need to be aware of, when market principles are packaged with right-leaning dictators and generals that kill their people, that's not a good thing, and it's not... It's a horrible thing, right? And in fact, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you to comment on, Roger. And I've never really asked your, your opinion of Trump or anything, but a lot of times people will in this country, act like Trump was a free marketeer, right? And because he made some noises about that, and he was probably more free market in one sense or another than Biden, but you know, he's more of a nationalist, right? And, and that's what you're talking about. And obviously not to the same degree, but that's the danger of, you know, will Javier Malay turn into more of a nationalist like some of the other uh, examples that you mentioned before in South America? That, that, is, that, is that something that he's going to be prone to? Yeah, I don't think so, but I could be wrong, and uh, time will tell. But you know, you ask my opinions on Trump, and everyone has a hot take on on Trump. But um, I mean, I I do think that you know, there's in any president, there are good things to, that they probably have done that you can you can point out. And Trump, obviously, in my opinion, you know, there are a number of more things than other presidents. That said. And this will get to our Argentina and Latin America sort of question is like when you don't commit to a peaceful transfer of power, that's a deal breaker. Yeah. And it, and it sounds like South America, right? Exactly. It that is South like America. So uh, Argentina went through several coups 
And this is the, the lesson here. You know, Malay was democratically elected by the largest margin since they democratized in 19, since they, uh, like by 11 percentage points since they democratized in 1983. And so he's popular largely in a Trump way as a backlash to the political class in, in Argentina that has just destroyed that country. Yeah. But, you know, the U.S. has done dumb things when it comes to foreign policy. And you can, you know, blame U.S. Uh, presidents and uh, advisors on their interventionism with right-leaning dictators in places like Argentina and Chile. From 19, in the 1970s to 1983, you know, a dictatorship, a junta, controlled uh, Argentina. And there's people, moms outside La Casa Rosada, which is their White House, to this day that are trying to look for their kids that the government disappeared. Wow. They call them Los Desperacidos. And like they're still trying to find them. So left and right, they both disappear people, but it was uh, it was pretty egregious and you know, I supported them. So you mentioned that Malay is very popular. He, he mm-hmm. won 56% of the vote or something yeah, like that? Yeah, and, and this was, plus. I mean, this was a pretty well-observed election. My understanding, I mean, there, there are people who will make the point that, you know, that this was, I mean, he... He kind of came, it seemed like he came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was kind of, for most Americans, who, or even most of our listeners, maybe they even he- haven't heard of this guy. But but I was kind of starting to watch and pay attention because of the, of the, you know, paying attention to the freedom movement, so to speak. And mm-hmm. you hear about uh, someone who's got an Austrian economics background yep. and, and he's getting popular, he's got some momentum. But it looks like, you know, it was very much, a, now again, like you said, maybe it's because how much of a disaster Argentina has been and people are just like, we got to do something different, right? Mm-hmm. We got to we got to vote against these guys, but but he looks like he's been pretty popular. Our producer Crescent was wanting me to ask you because, in the sense that you were saying it's a case study. I mean, how do people who are more freedom oriented do their campaigns? Can we learn anything from this guy? In yeah. one sense, he was Trump like because he's really brash, right? He's got yeah. all kinds of. I've seen his video. I love his videos. I think they're kind of interesting. He's saying how much he's going to cut things, and you know, he's dramatic. He cusses a lot. He's mm-hmm. he's a very colorful, if you will. <laughs> dynamic character, but is there any lessons that people who are wanting to make change, make positive change toward more liberalism, classical liberalism, freedom in this country or around the world can learn from his campaign? Yeah, those are all good questions. It'd probably be helpful for me to start with who the guy is, Yeah, yeah. um, like you were were saying earlier. But so he did come out of nowhere. I mean, he was, I think his first elected office was in 2021 into their Congress, uh, basically. But guy's a popular guy. So he was a football player for the juniors. And um, there's different juniors in the country. So I'm not a a football expert or anything. Uh, But he was a a goalie. He was pretty popular there. Then he went into economics and he's no slouch in economics. Like you you mentioned, he's a tried and true Austrian. He uh, quotes Rothbard, Maury Rothbard all the time, who is way out there. For those of you who don't know that this is very libertarian, uh, anarcho-capitalist type of uh, economist. Yeah, not not a great guy from my perspective. We we can go back to that, that whole anarcho-capitalism stuff. But go ahead. But yeah, so he uh, he's uh, written you know fifty different papers on economics, and he so he's no slouch. But then he was actually tapped to go into like political punditry, uh, and if anybody's watched Latin American just television, it's very telenovela across the board, and so very brash, very. Uh, audacious and everything. And that's where he kind of got that persona. And so he's very well known in, in the country. And then he, you know, ran for elected office and, and won. And his style is really bombastic. 
And one thing I, I do think that we can learn from is that libertarians, he is the first libertarian head of state in history. And so that's, I mean, for me, that's pretty exciting. I think um, there's something that we can learn from that. And I think people see when there's political corruption, there is decreasing levels of uh, living standards and inflation. And there's some things that we could say about America here that there is going to be a backlash. And when somebody speaks truth to power and isn't part of that political class and also can state the moral case for their positions, that is really important. He doesn't shy away from it. It doesn't, he doesn't talk like a lot of libertarians or economists do about utility, utility functions. And, you know, if, if we tweak this here and there, you know, it's going to increase, um, output or whatever you're trying to increase. No, he's talking about the evils of socialism. He's talking about the moral case for individual freedom and, and choice. And people eat that up because they have been ruled by the same Peronist party since the really off and on since the 1940s. Yeah. And he really leaned into that, I think, and in, in just spoke in terms of individual rights. And so one thing, um, one thing I wanted to pull out, and, and I try to translate this properly, socialism is always in all places a phenomenon of violent, murderous, and impoverishing people. Yeah, that's that. I really, I'm really glad you're bringing that point up because people make these comparisons to, to you know, quote right wing or even like Trump or whatever, and and they're not really acknowledging both his uh, his intellect. First of all, his his real, like you said, his bona fides with regard to economics. He taught economics and he's mm-hmm. stu- he studied he studied economics as a as a discipline for for decades, but he's also unlike lots of politicians going to a more fundamental level and talking about the moral and philosophical case versus just the, I mean, he, he, he makes, from what I can tell, he makes lots of good cases in terms of the utilitarian argument, but, but he always pulls it, pulls it back to that moral case. And that's what's missing from a lot of the right wing or, or supposed freedom oriented uh, uh, politicians and leaders around the world. And, and certainly in the U.S., right? Yeah. And I mean, that's what you taught us in the Defenders of Capitalism sort of course. The best way to champion these ideas is through the moral case. And he and he can do that. And But again, he can start with that and then lean into it, uh, into his knowledge on the economics just very, very clearly. And it does help. I'll, I'll add this. It does help him that his opponent was basically the architect for Argentina's entire economic destruction and disaster right now. It's amazing. I mean, this is, this is a, like you said, they, they have been in the past a wealthy country and they, they have so many things going for them, but they're now ranked 144th on the mm-hmm. American Freedom Index, the, the Heritage, I think it's Heritage, or maybe Fraser, maybe both of them. But, you know, they're very low ranked. Out of 180 countries that are ranked, they're 144th on the list in terms of freedom. And again, people... I think should be able to make that causal connection. Okay, why is that? Why are they so far down the list in terms of performance economically and and how they're doing? Well, it's because they're lacking the freedom. They have too much regulation, too much taxation. I mean, you you mentioned in the context of the U.S. and and we've definitely had a bout of inflation recently. But you know, we were talking about a hundred percent plus inflation over the last year or two, right? I mean, or for a, for a while. Yeah. Let me let me talk about that. People in the U.S. don't understand what that looks like and what that feels like, that is probably going to be his biggest hurdle that he's going to have to tackle and the most important thing that he's probably going to have to tackle first. So I was in Argentina about a a year and a half ago and it had 
totally changed since I was there in the mid 2000s. Uh, in the mid 2000s, they had stabilized their currency. They had another, like they go through these currency crises all the time. Um, and they had one in the early 2000s and they kind of stabilized it. And so it was normal. The economy was coming back. When I went back a year and a half ago, it was totally different. And so when you're living in a, like we complain about eight to 10% inflation, um, now it's gone down, fortunately. But when you're living in a 140% inflation environment, 40% of your po- uh, population in Argentina is in- impoverished. They're in poverty. And so when I went there, you know, you have to bring, they really tell you to bring a bunch of cash, American dollars, because I always, uh, Veronique de Rougie from the Mercatus Center always said like U.S. policy on spending and monetary policy is like the least ugly girl at the beauty pageant. So it's, it's not perfect in America, but it's way better than most countries. And so they tell you to bring in hundred dollar bills and you can exchange those. But the government tried to unsuccessfully really peg and limit the, the amount that you can exchange uh, pesos for dollars. So it was like one to seven at the time, I think. And that was the, what they called the blue rate. It was the, um, the, the rate, the official rate from the government. But there is a black market, a large black market that is pretty out there in the open. Just if you walk in the streets of Buenos Aires, that you can trade at the time. Now it's way different. A dollar for 35 pesos. And they, they call them cuevas, they're caves. And so they're black market caves. Imagine you're, I walked into this building and there's just plexiglass and people handing over a bunch of money. So most transactions, big transactions now in Argentina are already denominated in dollars. And because you can't hold cash at all. And so when you're actually making big purchases like a car or an apartment or whatever, you come with a briefcase of cash, dollars, because the, the peso is so crazy. And people, they imagine living uh, paycheck to paycheck and then having a 140, or 140% inflationary environment. What's worse about it is that they, the reason why they got there was because there's a little bit of history here because they they have indebted themselves to the International Monetary Fund. Uh, I mean, I think $50 billion. That debt is in American dollars. Real debt. Real debt. And so when the Federal Reserve increases interest rates, that just messes up our Argentina. Interesting enough, also, this is another thing for people out there interested in monetary policy, is that Argentina is one of the only states that doesn't have an independent central bank. And so political actors can inflate the heck out of their currency. In well, order. is that, Roger, i got to interrupt you. Is there such a thing as an independent central bank? Touche. <laughs> There's a veneer of independence in most independent banks, but fortunately we don't see, you know, you know Trump did put pressure on yeah. the Federal Reserve and, and in most other environments like Argentina, if he wasn't quote-unquote independent, the outcomes would have been very different. So this is really interesting because this is one of his big, uh, I mean, he's got a lot of ambition in terms of reducing the, the, the size and more importantly, the role of the state in Argentinian citizens' lives. But one of his big planks is to, to just truly get rid of the central bank, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I don't know, I don't have the expertise um, I know in principle that's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do around the world. Central planning doesn't work. It doesn't work in the U.S., and it certainly doesn't work in, in Argentina. But 
Um, do you know anything about the steps that he's got to take to get rid of the the central bank and and you know the odds that he could be successful in that? I mean, he's he's talking about basically uh, dollarizing mm-hmm. the economy, right? Yep. You've mentioned before, in a sense, because of the black market, it's de facto in many sectors. You know, you have to operate that way because you just can't. You just can't operate exactly with that kind of depreciation of your your currency. But he's talking about explicitly going there. Any, any thoughts on how, how that happens? Yeah, I mean, this is the, the top topic about his presidency is how is he actually going to do it? Because in order to do that, you have to convert those pesos into dollars. And right now, they do not have enough pesos to convert into dollars. So in order for him to just abolish the central bank there, he would have to completely dollarize the, the economy and basically outsource all of the monetary policy to Washington or the Federal Reserve. And so in order to do that, I mean, there's a lot of different ideas, but I think they do, like I said, have $50 billion that they could probably exchange. It's not enough. But estimates show that there's about $265 billion in people, like in dollars that Argentines hold, whether it's in a foreign account somewhere offshore or under their mattress, really. Now, how can he tap into that? I don't know. It's to be seen. Yeah, yeah, that'll be fascinating to watch. Um, uh, and, and that that goes back to the whole thing. Can he can he be successful? Um, can he actually really be that great case study? You mentioned he's the first libertarian, really, in in history to become elected president of a country. And what's it going to take for him be, to be successful? And 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 what's it going to take for for the propaganda people, the leftist propaganda and media around the world to be able to observe and report, report fairly on that, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of to whatever degree he does succeed. But we're cheering for him. Yeah. Uh, I, and I'll add, I mean, that's going to be his top priority. He had made all these different promises. Uh, you, you know, he's not a pure libertarian in some senses. Uh, he's, you know, saying that he's going to abolish their abortion bill that they passed in 2020. I mean, he ran on a right-leading platform in a largely Catholic country. So, I mean, I'm not shocked that he has that standpoint. Well, do you? Th- I don't know if you know anything about him personally, what he really believes. I mean, it's kind of funny. What would, I mean, again, we make these comments about uh, Trump and so forth. I mean, Trump, I don't think Trump's ideological at all on anything, to, to tell you the truth. But I think he's, you know, flip-flopped over the course of his public life and and his uh, political life in terms of that just that issue. Mm-hmm. But does Malay have any, I mean, obviously... Anyone in a in a uh, Latin American Catholic culture uh, has to to be elected probably has to pay lip service to the protection of life and, and the abortion issue. Mm-hmm. But but I think I wonder if he'll he'll learn that you know that that shouldn't be the centerpiece of his and it hasn't been. But but you know I'm, I'm wondering if you have any comments on that. Yeah. So I. And it might be a political calculus. I, again, I don't know all the players as as well as somebody locally would, but in order for him to win, like at the margins that he did, and then have a ruling or enough of a majority in Congress, because they don't just have a two-party system, they have multiple parties, uh, he had to build a bigger coalition. But does he actually have a coalition? Does he really have, I don't don't know, that's a question I have for you is, I mean, and you may or may not know that, does does, does he actually have enough support in the other branches of government there to really make any progress with his agenda? Yeah, so that's what he's. Uh, that's the the question, really, on the, on the big things. So that's where you know the monetary policy and all that is really going to be crucial to get enough support within Congress. But 
on the presidency, he got, so they had a runoff, as you, as you might know. In, in their system, in, um, if nobody in the general election uh, earns more than 45% of the, the vote, then, or, uh, then it will go to a runoff. And the top three candidates were Massa, who is the traditional Peronist, Malay, and then uh, a candidate from uh, Juntos por Cambio, or Together for Change, and Patricia, and I'm blanking on her last name, but she's more right-leaning. So, and they have a good chunk of congressional seats also. So they formed a pact along with the former president, Macri, uh, who's more, you know, free market um, in a sense. And, and that's the coalition that he, he built. Now, time will tell if he can sustain that coalition to make some of these big drastic changes that he's promising to implement. And uh, that's just the reality right now. And it remains to be seen. Now, does he, you, you talked about the idea in your mind, the, I want to touch on this. You talked about the ideal of anarcho-capitalism, right? And I, I question that. I, I, I don't think that uh, anarch, anarchism and capitalism are really the opposites, in my view. Now, I know a lot of libertarians or freedom-oriented people uh, would use that, and I and I've heard him, at least I've heard people characterize him, him and maybe himself uh, as a anarcho-capitalist. But I I want to insert this and 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 say, you know, I, I don't think that's an ideal at all. Um, I certainly don't think it's realistic from a practical standpoint. But it's not the right ideal. I mean, we. I, I use the phrase, and I don't know if you remember this, but I use the phrase, you know, government is actually a necessary good. You know, mm-hmm. people talk about, you know, the ideal is to get rid of government. Um, and I say, no, the, the ideal is to have the government in its proper role. Yep. And so I, I, I want to, you know, kind of push back on that, but both in terms of your own view, and, and, and I, again, you probably know more about uh, Malay than I do in terms of how he characterizes himself. Yeah, I mean, he kind of rides that fed. So I will say he is self-described anarcho-capitalist. I don't know how you could be an anarcho-capitalist head of state, but we'll we'll see how that plays out. He actually has a superhero alter ego. I don't know if you've seen this. I've, I've heard a little Captain bit about Captain and Cap. And so he, you know, uh, he's dressed up in black and yellow, which is the flag of anarcho-capitalists. And he's Captain and Cap, who's going to slash all the government agencies and spending and everything. So. I mean, he hams it up a little bit. I think he's playing into that. But I, from what he's suggesting and what philosophically he's talking about, about um, just the role of force in, with government and l- limiting that and the proper role of government to protect life. And then that's why he's a pro-life guy, for instance, is that, or that's what he says, is that he's pro-life because the fundamental uh, purpose of government is to protect life, liberty, and property. Right. And that's a quote from him. And so I do believe that he's probably more classical liberal and then hams up the ANCAP stuff, but who knows? He, I mean, a lot of his writing is about Murray Rothbard, it yeah. seems like, too. So, um, And as far as your, your, your stance on that, I've gone back and forth uh, for a while. Um, you know, back in my early days in, in D.C., I was part of organizations where if you were a minarchist or a classical liberal, you were kind of a squish. And, <laughs> you're yeah, not principled enough. You're not principled enough. So it was an interesting environment. But, you know, I've, I, I come to believe, and I've read science, this is going to get a little out there, but I've read science fiction by Werner Vinge, who's uh, uh, kind of an anarchist, capitalist uh, science fiction writer back in the day. Um, and he makes a case for a science fiction future with anarcho-capitalism, uh, just because of the rate of pace and technology and the expansion of humankind <laughs> across the universe. Until that happens, I do believe there's a proper role for government. <laughs> 
But that, that's, that's a way off in the future. I, I actually don't see that. I see that, you know, as long as human nature doesn't change. Um, now, obviously, when you talk about sci-fi and, you know, the, the, the way the human, uh, you know, humans can develop and evolve over time, maybe, that, maybe that's something. But, but yeah, that, that may be for a different episode where we can go into some sci-fi and talk about that in terms of the, the, the potential for having no role for a state. Um, in any conceivable world that I can imagine right now, given human nature what it is. And again, I, I say this is, people talk about the government being, uh, you know, freedom-oriented people who know that there should be a government, think it, of it as a necessary evil. I think it's a necessary good in terms of being able to be that that instrument of, of, of justice. Now, again, we don't have that right now because we're, we're losing objectivity. We're, u- losing, mm-hmm. we're losing the understanding, the proper understanding of what, what government is. Uh, and what I think ultimately that, that uh, the founders really yeah. set us on the right foot for, and I, and I believe that Ayn Rand actually built upon to, to define and say, okay, this is, what, this is what the role of government is. There is a proper role. It just has to stay within it. Um, but that's probably for maybe another time. Well, let me, let me ask you then uh, a question as, I mean, this is probably uh, a leading question, but is there any country that has achieved that sort of ideal uh, closest to that ideal in, in your opinion as a case study for, for us to view as, you know, the anti case study as Argentina, is there one on the positive side that, well, I think history. there is. I definitely think there is. I think in in the last you know fifty years, the best example is Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the, now obviously that's changed, changed. because you've got the, you've got the communists who've taken over Hong Kong. But there, I think there's lots of. I mean, one of the things that this is good uh, because we're talking we're using that term ideal, right? And people think of ideal as you know something that can't be reached. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's true. It, it is like a an ongoing aspiration to get there. And certainly the U.S. has never reached what I would call an ideal of capitalism. There have been times where we've been much more free. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I, I personally like to look at you know, the, the period after the Civil War. Once, once the—I mean, the Constitution was anti-slavery, as, as Frederick Douglass said in the first place. I believe the Constitution itself was anti-slavery. Yep. But lots of people, certainly lots of the South, didn't really get that or <laughs> agree with that. And then we fought a war over it. But once the Civil War was— was uh, over, and uh, the culture said, no, uh, it doesn't matter about the skin color that you have. You still are a human being, and you have human rights, and you have individual rights, and the, the job of the government is to protect them. And we, you, know, you had much less regulation. Now, there, there is an argument that Lincoln, you know, to win the war, brought in a lot bigger state, and yep. a, lot of those, a lot of those elements stuck around. But I think um, to answer your question, I think the U.S. during that time period from the Civil War before the progressives really took over was probably the freest time in our history. Now, did it reach that ideal? No. But communism is an ideal as well. And that, yep. that's the thing is every time I talk about this, and you probably remember me, maybe mm-hmm. hopefully you remember me saying it in class. I mean, you have these two opposing ideals. One is of the individual being self-sufficient, self-governing, being able to, to do what they want with their lives being sovereign over their lives with having a government that protects that sovereignty, Mm -hmm. protects their individual rights, that being capitalism, that being freedom, that's one ideal. And then you have the ideal of the opposite, collectivism, uh, you know, no individuality, no individualism. And every time throughout history, I think this is the thing that people need to realize, and and you're a great exponent of this. Every time uh, throughout history, when you get closer to one ideal, the other, 
you have case studies, you have examples, you have real world, real people on the one hand with communism and collectivism, death, misery, destruction, horrible results. And every time you inch toward the, the ideal of freedom, uh, and you know, Hong Kong is a good example, not recently, but um, you have flourishing, you have human flourishing, you have people who do well, you have wealth levels go up, you have, I think, spiritual values that go up. I think across the board, any way you measure human, human health, happiness, and flourishing, there's no uh, case. I mean, you, you just—it's inarguable. And and so that when we talk about idealism, I think that's the way to think of it. Well, I, I'd like to add on onto that. It, I mean, these are these are principles, the ideas from the Enlightenment that fortunately have spread throughout the world. You know, and starts and fits, and and unfortunately, some places by force, and um, like in Hong Kong and other places, but um, but they were instilled there, and it it does seem like. There, whether you're socialist, communist, or you know, classical liber- libertarian, or anything between Republican and Democrat, there seems to be this divide between individualism, where the role of government is to protect the rights of the individual, and then there's other forms of collectivism. You know, there is you know communism, socialism, but also there is a, a we we are social creatures, and so there is a. There's an ideal on the other side, just in a collective sense that we're all like a, the, the family unit, the community, the, the, the collective itself should be maximized. That, that's what the government is for, is to maximize the social well-being of the collective. And, and I would argue, like, whether you're Repu- Republican or Democrat, it, depending on where you fall in that, on that spectrum, there are dangers uh, to just a collective sense of the use of force by the government to instill um, benefit for a group of people. Yeah, it's, 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 it's all, I mean, there are dangers. That, that is the danger. And I, I kind of think of it as, I mean, you're bringing up a really good point, Roger, and I'm glad you did, because people oftentimes hear the, the language of individualism, individual rights, and, and think, well, they're, they're acting like we're not social animals. And, mm-hmm. and that's not true at all. Of course we're social animals. And most of what we, most of our lives, most of our daily functioning is very much a social thing, whether it's you know, operating in a family or a business or on a football team or whatever it might be. And we, we do great things socially. Yep. But we do it voluntarily, and that's exactly. the key thing. And you've mentioned several times, which I appreciate. You know, the, the issue of force versus freedom. You've got that. I mean, you're you're a great leader uh, and an exponent of of these principles, and I really Thank appreciate you. you doing that in the context of well, in, in many contexts, but certainly in the context of, of your leadership and education and, and raising funds for that that battle. Well, thank you. And I mean, it's the belief. Of like going back to the that what you just said. I mean it that's a fundamental belief and ideal, like you said, that can be applied consistently across whether we're talking about politics or giving, knowing that the parent has the best knowledge, the best local knowledge on how to educate their child, the individual parent or the parents know what's best versus some collective. We are social animals. Like you said, we, but the beautiful thing um, about markets and, and communities and civil society is that we voluntarily associate, voluntarily associate with each other and that's what's beautiful rather than through forced collectivization. Couldn't say it better myself. You've been listening to Roger Pattison, who's a uh, champion, mainly in the context of education with ACE scholarships. Uh, he's the chief development officer for ACE, uh, but he's also, uh, like I said, a champion of our Defenders of Capitalism program and leadership program of the Rockies and spreading freedom wherever he goes. 
Roger, we could continue this conversation for probably hours, and I hope to have you back sometime and, and really want you to be involved in the, in the program, continue your, uh, your participation there. Um, thank you so much for being here. It's been awesome. It's always great to see you, Mike. Thanks so much. All right. This has been another, another episode of the Defenders of Capitalism Project. Hopefully you're enjoying this. This episode and, and, and some of our other episodes, tell us what you think about this Javier Malay. Tell us what you think about the various ongoing issues that we're dealing with as a society. Like, share, help us up the listenership and the algorithm. Let us spread the message of freedom everywhere. 